there haven't been any politics around this issue over the last couple of weeks, so we figured it would be good to... I'm kidding. There's obviously a few uh, new developments in the past two weeks, and to digest a lot of that and how we can make sure that politics is not part of the problem or an obstacle in solving these big challenges, but a means of getting to solutions faster, we have a panel that I think is quite an exciting array of people who've been practitioners either as elected officials at the highest levels in this space or in the highest levels of political advisory in this space, advising prime ministers, premiers, and the like. So um, as we fill out the stage to make room for them, I'm also going to begin to introduce them and they can make their way to the stage. We have former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada and Minister of Natural Resources for Canada, Anne McClellan. We have a former Minister of Natural Resources and Transportation and Labour for Canada, Lisa Raitt. We have former Alberta Minister of Energy and Environment, Sonia Savage, Vice President of External Relations at Pathways Alliance, and a former Director of Policy Research in the Prime Minister's Office, Mark Cameron. And leading them in the conversation, we have the CEO of WWF Canada, former MP and former Deputy Leader of the New Democratic Party, Megan Leslie. So that's the whole list. I think we still have one more chair coming up. Yeah. Are we all set now? Okay, perfect. All right, give them a warm welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, I just turned my chair a little bit so I can see you all. So I feel like starting off by saying uh, a liberal, a new Democrat, and three conservatives walk into a bar. <laughs> I don't know where the rest Dang. of them are. Yeah. <laughs> the taxpayers, Lisa, the taxpayers. I miss you, Megan Leslie. <laughs> I miss you. Um, okay, so the folks on stage today have incredible resumes. You heard a little bit about it, about them. You can read in the bios. But for the purpose of this conversation, I think it's really important to point out that we have uh, former Minister of Natural Resources, two former Ministers of Natural Resources, uh, a former Minister of Energy, uh, a former um, advisor both in, in government departments, Privy Council, and in the Prime Minister's office. And then uh, I, I guess I'm the token New Democrat as a former uh, opposition environment Deputy critic. Leader. <laughs> Deputy leader. Um, so this is a, a conversation that is about politics. First, I want to say thanks for agreeing to have this conversation. Uh, thank you for not backing out, considering all the news that's happened this week or even yesterday <laughs> on climate. Uh, it's really exciting to have you here and, and dive into this topic. When when I hear about politics and climate change, I hate it when people start off by saying, Canada is so divided. But I actually think on this issue, Canada is a little bit divided. So let's get into how we can fix that. And Anne, I want to start with you. Uh, we chatted a little bit over email about this panel, and you noted, hey, there are no easy answers here. No. Uh, and... And I wonder if what the answer is, is to go back to what we know about politics and what works in politics, and that is collaboration, that is patience, uh, that is returning over and over to the same issues and, and finding a way through it. You've navigated some pretty tough issues in your career. What, what have you drawn from those experiences that you think can apply to climate politics today? Before I answer that question, I want to return to what you said about how divided we are or aren't. And in fact, uh, at the Coalition for a Better Future, we had Nick Manos do some research for us. And part of what he did was focus on young people. And in fact, there, most young people overwhelmingly in this country want faster action on climate change. And that generation will actually be 
uh, taking over positions of influence and power. They uh, will be making decisions at lending and financial institutions. So I, I accept the fact that we that from where you start, which is that I actually don't think we're as divided as some elected officials and some others, even in the private sector, might suggest. But for me, the way you get things done, and Lisa and I were talking this morning with a group of public servants as part of the clerk's uh, new project in terms of renewal and reform of the public service. Um, in fact, it's hard work, it's relationship building, um, it uh, is about collaboration. This country is 13 provincial and territorial jurisdictions and one government of Canada. And I think there's sometimes an arrogance that goes with being the government of Canada, that somehow you think that uh, even though you're one against 13, but there's a certain arrogance uh, that comes with being part of the government of Canada that leads you to think that you can define the circumstances by which something gets done. And I think the Supreme Court uh, last week made it very plain that in fact, that arrogance will lead you right. down a road that is not helpful to anyone. It just simply creates more uncertainty and so on. So do the hard work. There's no magic here. This isn't glamorous. It is about doing the hard work, building the relationships, taking on board. What is it we agree on, right? This is the thing. What is it? One, what's our objective? And generally, there's agreement on that. Then take off the table the things we agree on, and then let us take our time and focus on the areas of disagreement, why we disagree, and what are the possible compromise solutions to deal with that disagreement. If you don't operate that way, and look, you may not get where you need to go, but if you don't do that, chances are failure is going to be your number one option. Mm. Mark, you have a lot of experience in this, uh, not just uh, bridging divides among parties, but federal province divides, and and I would say industry divides with industry, divides with uh, environmental NGOs. What are some of your experiences and what works? How do we operationalize this? That's a great question. Well, and it's also great that we have a New Democrats moderated debate between three conservative <laughs> liberals, especially because <laughs> the liberal is as partisan as Ann McClellan. So, uh, Proudly. Oh. Badge of honor, Ann. Proudly. Proudly. Uh, no, I think I think what we really need is to find those areas of consensus and and to build on them rather than rather than trying to find the areas of, of disagreement. I mean, I know in my own background, uh, I, I worked a lot on the carbon pricing issue um, when Catherine McKenna was was the minister of of environment, basically arguing with my fellow conservatives that carbon pricing is is good conservative public policy. Uh, and actually, I supported most of the recommendations of, of, of what the government put into place in, in, their, in their carbon price policy. But there's still a huge debate over gas and, as we've seen, home heating and the consumer carbon pricing. But there's actually a consensus, I think, in, in this country on industrial carbon pricing. The industrial carbon price that Canada has, the OBPS, is based on the model that Alberta has had since 2007. So so that's a gain. We have, we have a consensus that we need to have industrial carbon pricing. We, we have a, a trajectory on price going up to 170 that is now you know relatively predictable. And if we can if we can keep on that, that's what companies are building into their into their their spreadsheets and their investment decisions. So I think we need to build on those areas of consensus. There's a, there's a consensus around the goal of net zero by 2050. 
Uh, it, so, so you know, these are the, these are the things we have consensus on. Let's build on them rather than fighting about you know whether the federal government has the authority to do a clean electricity regulation or can we get to you know a forty percent reduction by twenty thirty, which seems overly overly ambitious. Like, let's figure out what we can do and build on those. But here's the thing: both you and Anne talk about like you know, let's build on what we can build on and collaboration and consensus. But these are political parties. How how am I going to get elected on on collaboration? Well, the public likes collaboration a lot more than politicians do, right? The politicians like to find find wedge <laughs> issues. But I think there are, you know, we have a consensus of this policy on health care. We debate around right. the edges, but we have a consensus. And we need to build that kind of a consensus on climate and energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can draw lessons from successful policies like health care. Um, Sonia, I want to ask you about this. You sometimes I think that the politics or or the coverage of the politics is is quite a bit different than some of the things that are happening on the ground or behind closed doors or 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 publicly. We just maybe don't want to report on things that are going well. And I think about when you were minister, you actually paved. The, no, we don't pave. Uh, you actually laid the table for faster or easier um, geothermal in Alberta. I don't remember really reading about that. I don't remember really uh, hearing about it. And maybe maybe that's the issue. Good things are happening, but we're but, covering the division. Well, definitely. There is definitely behind the, behind the scenes, there's a lot more collaboration and cooperation than you read about. And that's the only way we're going to actually achieve our common objectives. Like the federal federal government net, net zero by 2050 has the same objectives as the Alberta provincial government net zero by 2050. The only way we're going to get there is to cooperate and collaborate and to find areas where we agree and work on them. If all as we do is, is, uh, is debate about areas where we disagree, we're getting nowhere. And unfortunately, it seems in the last six months, it's getting worse instead of better. Um, we're hearing more more debate and, and Twitter wars, op-eds and papers, angry letters back and forth, but that's not helping. Meanwhile, like the, the United States is eating our lunch. They are getting ahead. They are moving forward. I read recently they have 191 CCUS projects that are on the books. There's four big projects to on cement, decarbonizing cement. There's seven hydrogen hubs. We used to be ahead in Canada. We are behind. They're eating our lunch because we're not cooperating. And meanwhile, um, we have the same objectives. Like, how can we get better? And I think to your point, you pointed out some of the good things that are happening in Alberta. And I think if we want to find solutions, it means cooperation. It means collaboration. And I think you can look to the past. You can look to the past on our way forward to the future. And in every circumstance, when you look to Alberta and where we've been successful at reducing emissions, it's been led by Alberta, regulated by Alberta, following some pressure from the federal government of wanting to get in a certain direction, and Alberta regulated it and overachieved. That's in uh, getting off of coal-fired electricity. The target was 2030. Alberta regulated. We're off by 20, end of 2023. It's uh, on methane emissions. Federal had a federal government had objective. They stood back, let Alberta regulate. We're ahead. Same with uh, an emissions cap on oil on oil sands, a hundred megaton cap. That's Alberta who put that cap in place, and it's way below that. You can look at numerous examples. The tier carbon price on carbon. We we have equivalency 
on the same price for the industrial price of carbon, and it's reducing emissions on top of all of that. Alberta brought in geothermal critical minerals. So I think the solution on this is find the areas where we agree and then step back for the federal government instead of imposing their way, their targets, regulating with prescriptive regulations. Let's get over to do it. I want to challenge this a bit because we saw that slide from Dale where it showed provincial policies and, and where the target is and the provincial policies aren't going to get us there. So, so you said the U.S. is eating our lunch. What do we do to bridge that gap and also seize the opportunities of this new economy? Well, I think what's missing in, like, we don't, we have the ambition in Canada. We have companies that want to get going on decarbonization projects, whether it's CCUS, whether it's sustainable aviation, fuel, biodiesel, hydrogen. They want to get moving ahead. But you know what's holding them back is governments. Governments are not getting the incentives out the door. They're not getting certainty. We're bickering and arguing about whose jurisdiction it is instead of getting stuff done. And we have the same objectives. Federal, provincial has the same objectives. So I think we, we have to catch up with the United States. We have to uh, get around the constitutional debate on whose objectives it is. And we have, we have the, the recipe for future success by looking at past achievements on the way forward. And that's through various governments in, in, in Alberta and Ottawa on cooperation, whether it was the NDP government in, in Alberta and the federal government, federal liberal government in Ottawa, or our government, the, the government I was part of, there's that recipe that shows that's the way forward. And I think we we uh, we can get where we we can get there. We can get to net zero by 2050 if we if we cooperate and get out of each other's way. Now, Lisa, you have um, I think you have a, a reputation of somebody who works collaboratively across party lines, uh, someone who's a real doer. Uh, I also think of you a little bit as the iron fist and the velvet glove because I have seen you call people out and say, come on, it is not about if, it is about how. Yeah. And when I think about the opportunities that you're missing out on economically, what are your reflections, especially now in this new role that you have, about what the political classes need to understand about what is happening right now? That speed is essential, mm -hmm. uh, that the time of debating is over, quite frankly, and now it's implementation, it's execution. And I will give you an example of one thing that everybody agrees on, provinces, feds, industry, investors, indigenous, and that is federal guarantees on indigenous loan project. Right. One, why are we still having the debate? Why is that not something that's already cemented in stone? that is actually going out into the market so that we can find the investing money that's actually going to make sense to make these projects go ahead. It's an easy bottleneck, and yet we're mired. Nobody's against it, mm -hmm. No, and Alberta's doing a great job with it. Nobody's against it, but we just can't access it, and we can't get it going. Which we set up in three months under uh, under the uh, UCP government. Right. So. so, I mean, that's one thing where there is collaboration, and then yeah. you build on something like that. Um, but in terms of the, look, I look at the United States and as much as we like to think in Canada, we're very smug that, you know, we get along and, and everything is wonderful. We're such nice people. The U.S. passed four major pieces of legislation that allows them to eat our lunch. Infrastructure Act, IRA, the CHIPS Act, and then they did something on the debt ceiling. And that has opened the door for Canadian investment and worldwide investment to flood into that market to have all these projects that Sonia's talking about. And I would submit 
that that is not a Congress that's necessarily not polarized, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And they got that done, yeah. and we can't get it done here. Um, one other, I would just add one other thing. What we have to step back from is this notion of labeling each other mm -hmm. that if you believe this, you're a tree hugger. If you believe, if you want to ask a question on a policy having to do with the environment, you're necessarily a climate denier. Mm -hmm. That kind of polarization really does personally impact people to want to move ahead together. And if we can just agree to lay down arms on that, I think that's a really good first step. I want to throw something out there to the four of you that uh, I didn't chat with you about beforehand. So here we go. Oh. Uh, the latest bee in my bonnet is um, this idea that, okay, let's go back in time a little bit. Federally, we used to have a, what did they call it, where you got uh, a subsidy, a per vote subsidy. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, and, yeah. and back in the day, I remember knocking on doors and people being like, well, you don't have a chance in this riding, but I'll vote for you to to make sure you get my money, to make sure you get my my fee or whatever. Letter. And so there was a tactic with smaller parties to say, hey, we want you to vote. There was a, an incentive to get people out to vote. And I think about now where, you know, I asked you, Mark, how do you get elected on this stuff? How do you raise money on this stuff? How do you have a viable political party with access to funds? You create division. You know, it's not about distinguishing yourself. It's about division. It's about rage politics. That raises a lot of money. And I wonder, I'm not going to ask you if you think we should have a per vote subsidy again, but I just think about maybe the solution to uh, uh, more thoughtful climate politics is actually tackling and strengthening our democracy, strengthening our political institutions. Can that be a way forward for us to turn the temperature down here in Canada? No, I, I think it's a great point. I mean, it's not just, I think the Provo subsidy is a good example, but the whole way social media kind of incentivizes engagement and what in, what drives engagement is angry opinion on either side, right? And that is driving so much of the conversation. Uh, we absolutely need to have things like the Coalition for Better Future that are, are trying to create a consensus and find those areas where we can, where we can work together. But, the, but uh I think there's no question that democratic polarization leads to leads to polarization on issues like this. And that coalition is, uh, it's, I don't know if you'd say an institution, but it's so great because it's like this outside body, this third party that people can say, oh, well, I, I trust that organization. Yeah, exactly. And I think we came into existence because people felt that uh, their traditional democratic institutions uh, were not functioning the way they'd hoped. They had become too polarized. Mm -hmm. They were listening constructively. And there are all, the, all these people in civil society, from the biggest corporations to charities and nonprofits, who are, who are our members, who felt that they wanted, well, quite literally, a safe space mm -hmm. in which they could come together and share their points of view and in fact, we work at a fairly high or macro level of, uh, if you like, policy discussion, but every one of our members has signed on to Net Zero 2050. Pathways is a member, for example. Everyone is committed to Net Zero 2050, and it's a safe place where, to Lisa's point, people don't 
get demonized. You may be pathways who uh, are a member and we have members who are climate organizations. Uh, so that I think it's too bad to your point that so many people in this country feel they have to step outside traditional political parties to have that kind of engagement and dare I say respectful engagement and sharing of views and collaboration that I think we used to look for at least to some extent in our political parties. Yeah, we had a salon last night, Coalition did, on housing. And at each table we had a developer, a builder, we had a representative from from uh, like an FPAC or from uh, the Cement Association. I mean, people who can be on the opposite sides of issues all four tables, no, there were no bun fights broke out. We didn't have to relieve them of their cutlery. And I think we came away with a really good understanding. And I was disabused of some notions that I had because there was an expert sitting at my table telling me in a very sensible way why that was wrong. Mm -hmm. And we foster that kind of stuff. And last night, not to call anyone out in a very good way, we had representatives from the Liberal Party, the Minister of Housing, we had representatives from the Conservative Party and the New Democratic Party yeah. at our housing discussion last evening. And no one felt uncomfortable. Everybody felt that they were engaged in meaningful conversation, working to a common objective in terms of how we deal with this, if let's call it probably what it is, housing crisis. Yeah, I think this can be part of the solution for sure. Sonia and, and then Lisa, I want to ask you about um, how, wh what's your advice or what are your thoughts around the situation we're in of, of short-term political gain versus the long-term picture here? How do we square that circle? What's advice that you have for the political classes? Well, yeah, and it seems like it's every, everything the, is, is about the win of the day. Having the tweet of the day, having the soundbite of the day, getting an op you know, a, a positive media article the next day and it's not long term. I think we're on to something here to get to get more more collaboration, more coalitions, more business organizations, bringing us together and talking about the goals that we share in common and really kicking it hard to the political politicians that we're not going to get there if we keep fighting. And from my province's perspective, we need to reach net zero because it's the way to diversify the economy. It's not only about reaching climate objectives, but it's industrial policy mm -hmm. to build new businesses in hydrogen and biodiesel, carbon capture in in uh, more more renewables. It's about building the economy for the federal government. It's about reaching the climate objectives. We're not going to get there if we don't start cooperating. And that needs to be to be to be made clear in the most strong ways for both levels of government that we have the same objectives to get there you've got to step back and start collaborating now our constitution makes it a little more difficult because everybody gets stuck in constitutional corners on what you the the rights that you do or don't have but we've got to get beyond that and just uh just move forward with what we share in common yeah lisa do you I would, my advice would be uh, for the former politicians out there who are kind of camped on the sidelines, this is a defining moment in our country. It's going to chart the course for our children, their children, the children, seven generations after. It's going to court, we are charting the prosperity now. The decisions are that important and that big. So if there's any former politicians sitting on the sidelines, 
that can show collaborative, I guess, across the border discussions, because they all work, we all work together outside of politics. Mm -hmm. um, bring some of that home and, and work and help the people who are now sitting in the positions in politics to understand the importance of actually collaborating more. I'm not saying that we're going to try to water down what, what our friends are attempting to do in our parties, but I, I do think that there is a role to be played by people who are out to pasture, as it were, um, but still have a, a real caring for the country. That includes you too, Megan. Yeah, is that a read? <laughs> it's a it's a call to action, I guess. No, I I I appreciate hearing that very very much. Yeah, um, constitutionality. The I, I've got to ask Mark, what do you think about um, the IAA decision with Supreme Court of Canada? What do you predict um, that decision is going to do to climate politics in the future? Right. Imagine sure. it's going to be a little more thorny. No, great, great question. And you know, Minister Savage and I were, worked on the IA when it was being implemented and, and recommended a whole series of amendments. In fact, there was consensus in Alberta between the NDP and the UCP as to what amendments were necessary, uh, most of which passed the Senate. And then the government didn't accept those amendments uh, and, and went back to their original legislation. So, so there, there actually was a path to consensus on the IA that, that I think you know maybe maybe. I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah. Uh, but I think what the court said, and we have a constitutional law professor here, so I'll let her correct me, but the government has limited authority in greenhouse gases. They have authority to regulate you know, a, a, a benchmark price across the country because that's something where you actually do need uh, uh, all provinces to be moving in the same direction. But they don't have a broad general authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Many of the specific things are within the purview of the provinces that have exclusive authority over natural resources and electrical generation, et cetera. So... The, I think the, the government needs to move more carefully, whether it's on the clean electricity regulation or a future oil and gas emissions cap, to make sure that they're actually acting within their constitutional authority. Because I think the worst possible result would be to bring in regulations that lead to investment uncertainty, lead to constitutional fights. And then five years from now, after we've lost all the investments in the United States, we discover that the federal government didn't have the authority to do it in the first place. Like, let's get it right the first time. Touche. Uh, another example of the need for collaboration and actually acting on that collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, to wrap, I want to ask a question to each of you, and I'll, and I'll answer. I'll start with my answer to give everybody a little bit of a chance to think. Uh, the five of us start our own political party right here, right now, and uh, congratulations, you've been elected leader. So, what would you do? How would you lead our little political party? to not only act on climate, but to win. And I'll offer that what I would do is I find that a lot of our climate policies, like a carbon tax or the electricity regulations, they're so technocratic. They're like up there in the sky. They don't relate to me as a human being in my life. So I would focus on policies that people could see their values in those policies, like uh, having access to a warm and comfortable home through energy efficiency, having access to green technologies, whether I'm a, a farmer or somebody who drives a taxi, can I, how, how do I access a, 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 a electric vehicle or these technologies that Tejas was talking about? So I would focus on values-driven policies. Um, Mark, I'll start with you. If you were, as our fearless leader, how are you going to lead? The first thing I do is resign and work for one of these. <laughs> 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 uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think Stuart Elgie always says that in climate policy, we need to sell the beach and not the flight. You know, uh, 
companies that are selling big vacation packages don't tell you you have to line up for six hours to get on a, to get on a charter <laughs> flight and you can only carry one bag. No, they, they say you know, you're going to be in the Bahamas in, in uh, two weeks. And we, we have to figure out what is that what is that common vision of of, of where we're going. And I, I, I agree. It's, it's you know, what do we want? We want more home. We want, we want reliable food. We want these, these basic necessities. Uh, it, and people know that that things have to change for us to be able to count on that in the future. But let's focus on on the destination and not necessarily on the, the sausage making of how we get there. Thanks. Lisa, how will you lead us? I would recruit the younger generation mm-hmm. and I would go after high high profile younger generation to come in to demonstrate that we're serious and we uh, want stability and we want to move forward thinking about the future. And that I think I, I unfortunately would lose by running on a platform of long-term economic growth because uh, nobody else does that. But um, I just think it's that important. But I think the key, though, is recruiting the next generation to take over. Thanks. And how would you leave? I agree with that. But you know one thing, if you go back to 95, 96, Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, and the government of which I was a part called on all Canadians to sacrifice, yeah. right, to get the fiscal mess this country was in back in order. And everybody in this country sacrificed because they knew the situation in which we found ourselves. It played out in communities, in provinces, in individual homes uh, every day. So as political leader, I think you've got to be honest with people. And I would work really hard going across this country, not gilding the lily any longer, that if we are actually going to deal with the climate crisis, then we will have to sacrifice just as we asked people to sacrifice in 95 and 96. And it may cost me a little bit more for my electricity. May, uh, you know, maybe my car is different than the one I drive. I have a hybrid now, by the way. But all that to say that you've got to be honest with people. You've got to stop pretending it's easier than it is. People right now are starting to realize how hard this is actually going to be because it's starting to cost them. Well, somebody should have been honest with them a long time ago. Provinces, federal government, whoever, people in influence, the private sector, that if we're going to do this, this is going to cost. And there are uncertainties, but we're asking all of us, as we did in 95, to step up and be part of this and sacrifice because otherwise we don't get where we need to go. Sure. Well, I guess I would start by by uh, developing climate policy and a pathway to get to net zero and bringing people in and, and assuring them that we can do this. We can actually develop smart climate policy and get to net zero without compromising affordability and reliability of your, your energy and without causing geopolitical tensions, shifting shifting wealth to places in the world that are less reliable and more dangerous, that we have to look and we have to move forward with all of those goals in mind. You can't just create climate policy in a vacuum and cause it to be unaffordable and unreliable for people. And we can do it all. You can do it all. If you do it smart and you do all of those things together, you can actually grow the economy. And it's, it's smart climate policy becomes industrial policy. And we have to do, do it smart. And I think uh, the second part is we have to do it between federal and provincial governments smart. 
I think uh, turning, we have the history and the past examples of how we can get it done by having overall federal visions and frameworks and targets, but you have to leave it to the provinces to regulate and, and get there. We can't see, it'll never work in my province to accept federal regulations in areas of provincial jurisdiction. The province will step up itself and probably get to the same place, the exact same place by regulating itself. But they'll, as, as Mark has said, well, five years from now, 10 years from now, we'll still be debating about this unless we, we, we find a way to, to work within the framework, the constitution. Yeah, I wanted to give I, I just perspective from Mexico. So Anne and I were at an event in Mexico that involved uh, Mexico, Canada, the United States. And there was a political panel that I was on at the very beginning. And they asked us the question of what is going to be driving the election cycle? What's important? What's the main topic that Canadians are talking about? And for me, it was emissions reduction. Makes sense. It's energy transition. Mm -hmm. So the Mexican representative said, um, well, for us, it's the fact that we don't have a stable grid. We don't have enough electricity to do everything we want to do. And the United States said fentanyl. Yeah. Fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And they were dead serious. Like, we're the only ones in this North American compact seriously talking about emissions and climate plan and climate policy. Everyone else has dealt with it or moved on. Mm -hmm. This is all very uh, concrete advice, and I hope that folks are listening. Uh, I certainly was. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for stepping up. Thank you for heeding Lisa's call, uh, even though she issued it here, yeah. for making sure you know, you've know got some skin in the game and you're not sitting on the sidelines. Uh, so thank you for that, and thanks for this panel.